Father, that is our prayer tonight, that not our will, but yours would be done. And we look to you now as we gaze into your perfect will, into your word. We humble ourselves and we ask for the illumination of your spirit. And it's my prayer that you encourage your saints tonight and propel us further down this path of maturity. We would ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good evening, and as you know, as you've been told several times today, we are continuing tonight, jumping back into our series on Christian maturity. And in case you're new tonight, or you're just, you're just jumping into this series, we're calling it Growing Up, because that's what God wants every single one of His children to do. <clears throat> He's caused us to be born again, 1 Peter 1 says. He's brought us into His family, He's made us alive, and He wants us to grow. He wants us to progress from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. Or as we're saying, as Paul says and many of the other authors, spiritual maturity. And we've seen that even though we'll we'll never be perfect now in this life, we can reach maturity. We can become mature. In other words, it's possible for the overall pattern of our lives to reflect Christ, to resemble Jesus, to think and to feel and to act like His Son. Consistently. And that's God's goal for our lives, and He's working out every last detail toward this glorious end. He's absolutely committed to finishing the work that He started, Philippians 1.6. And last week, we saw just how committed God is to our maturity. When it comes to our growth, we've got to realize, this, this is number one, we've got to realize that God underwrites it. He empowers it. He motivates it. He's provided all we need to make our growth a reality. And the last time we were together, we looked at four of those provisions, or three of the four. Um, The first provision that we looked at was the Spirit. And we saw that the hope of, of every human is bound up in whether or not we have God's Spirit dwelling in us. We heard an echo of that this morning, didn't we, in Romans 7. The law can't change a human being. Only God's Spirit can. Without Him, we are dead in our sin. We cannot change. But with Him, we have access to God's creative and transforming power. He makes us alive. He energizes us to repent of sin, and He produces His fruit over time. But we saw that the Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum, does He? What does He use? The truth, right. The Spirit uses the truth. And that's that's the second provision we looked at last time. One of the Spirit's fundamental ministries in our lives is helping us understand and apply the truth. That's how He bears His fruit in our lives. He turns on the lights in our hearts. He convicts of sin. He helps us see the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. He helps us renew our minds. He teaches us to obey. And He does all of this through His ministry of the truth in our lives. And last week we saw that the Spirit can be found working through the truth in a unique place. Where? In the church. Right. He's working in the midst of His people. Provision number three. God designed the church as the place where this transforming work happens. God has set up His church in such a way to promote and defend the truth through its public ministries, like preaching and prayer and the ordinances, 
But the church also models what this obedience looks like through its people, through the relationships that we have in the body right here. And so it makes sense then that the gathered church, this is the place that God has designed to transform us. Sunday after Sunday. And we ended last time with asking the question, but what about Monday through Saturday, right? What about when we're not with God's people? We saw briefly that even here, even in the world, provision number four, even in the world, God provides for our maturity. God uses the world and our sufferings in it, particularly our sufferings in it, to continue to powerfully grow us, to bring us to maturity. Now, I told you last week that this is such an important provision, especially this, what we might think, hard to think of suffering and trials as a provision, but um, this provision is so important that we need to think carefully about it. We couldn't just tack it on to the last five minutes of the message last time. So, Tonight, we're going to look at how God uses trials, in particular, to bring us to maturity. And this is crucial that we think about this, again, just introducing it here for us. Because trials themselves, trials themselves are a temptation, aren't they? You might think, trials are an instrument God uses for maturity, but they're a temptation. From a human standpoint... From our vantage point, they are a serious threat to the church. And they seem like a threat to God's project to mature us. Why is that? Because trials are very, very difficult. Right? Trials are hard. Sometimes they're very hard. And for a people who are loved by God, it seems counterintuitive to us that he would use the severity of trials to bring us to maturity. And the Bible doesn't shy away from the fact that trials are very hard. Peter says we are often, quote, grieved by various trials. 1 Peter 1.6. We're grieved by them. Hebrews says the trial is painful when we're in it. Hebrews 12.11. The psalmists weep. They even moan under the burden of affliction. And even the great Apostle Paul pled with the Lord multiple times to take away his thorn in the flesh. Trials are hard for us, and there is no doubt about that. The sudden death of a loved one. And the years of heartache that come afterwards. Chronic pain with no cure. Financial hardships when you're already working 80 hours a week. Unbelieving family members. And the list goes on. The self-absorbed roommate in college. Trials are difficult. And because they are, trials are often a temptation for us. We're tempted to believe all kinds of lies when we're in one. Is God really good? Why would he take me through this if he loves me? Is he wise? How can this be best for my life? Is he in control? It doesn't seem like he is. Why would he let this happen? Maybe he's punishing me for something. We're tempted to doubt God. We're tempted to grumble, to malign his character, to question his purposes, and to miss all the good growth 
that God intends for us in taking us through the trial. And that's why it's not an understatement to say that the entire Bible makes sure that we have a theology of suffering. We have to know that trials are coming. We have to know that. We have to know that being in the world means difficulty for Christians. Jesus says this very clearly and very simply in John 16, 33. Listen to this. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. In the world you will have tribulation. If the world opposed him, it will oppose us too. And, that's, and this should not surprise us. But even more important to know, beyond the fact that trials are coming, is this truth And this is our anchor for tonight's message. Trials ultimately serve God's eternal and perfect purposes. Trials ultimately serve God's eternal and perfect purposes. Or, to put it in Joseph's words, what his brothers intended for evil in betraying him and and selling him into slavery, God intended for good literally, to save the world. Genesis fifty twenty. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. From beginning to end, God is mysteriously and meticulously working through evil and rebellion in this world to bring about His good and perfect and glorious purposes. And this, is, again, is a theme that the Scriptures don't step away from. Often when God's enemies think they have won, they've only ended up furthering God's will. Take the crucifixion, for example. Crucifying the Messiah is the most heinous crime we humans have ever committed. And when we thought we killed God, We thought we stopped God's plans once and for all. As it turns out, we only fulfilled His will and furthered His plan to redeem the world. That's Peter's point in Acts 2. That's Paul's point in Acts 13. Mysteriously, God is even at work in the plotting of evil men. His good intentions override their evil intentions. Nothing is outside of his control. Not even the traffic jam on our way to church, as we've laughed about a couple weeks ago. No one can ultimately thwart God's gloriously good plan. No matter how big or how small. Not Vladimir Putin. As he decides whether or not to use nuclear weapons. Notice custom-wise? Well, Luke tells us in Acts 14... Again, Acts 14, this is sort of Paul's custom. This is what he typically does. I think Luke gives us this in Acts 14 to show us this is his pattern. He's preaching preaching the gospel in cities. And then it says in verse 21 of Acts 14, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed, to the, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So what did Paul do when he, when he planted churches? He came back to visit them, and Acts tells us he did two things on that return visit. He established elders, and he taught them about the necessity of trial. Paul knew that if the church was going to endure, if the church was going to thrive, they had to know about suffering and God's good purposes in it for them. They had to know. They had to realize and embrace this good and glorious means of growth, and so do we. But what's really, really good news for us is that the Bible is explicit about at least what's uh, about at least of some of what God is doing in these trials. Oftentimes, people say things like, "You just don't know what God's doing in a trial, but just trust His heart," you know. And that's well-meaning, and I'm sure I've said something similar at one point. Or the, you know, God doesn't always tell us the why, but He actually does, broadly speaking, in Scripture. He tells us exactly what He's up to when he lovingly brings these trials into our lives. So we need to make sure that we are aware of what the scriptures say. We don't want to go beyond them, right, and start interpreting our circumstances, but we want to view our circumstances through the lens of scripture so that we can take heart, so that we can submit to God's hand in these trials and learn all that God has for us in them. And so tonight, I've identified at least six ways that God matures us through these trials. So this is kind of a part two to last week's message, how God matures us, and we're dialing in specifically tonight on trials. And so we're going to look at at least six ways that the Lord is working in our lives, that He's told us that He's working in our lives through these trials. And again, this is not comprehensive. I'm sure that we could add more to this list. But these are some, some that I've found, some explicit statements that, that talk about what the Lord is doing in these trials. It gets us going in the right direction. When the Lord sends a trial, especially when we're less mature, one of the first things He accomplishes is He exposes our false hopes, any idols that we've secretly erected and cherished. And so we could say that God, number one, He matures us through trials by exposing our false hopes. A trial, like nothing else, will quickly reveal any false hope that we are leaning on. Paul writes about this experience where this happened to him over in 2 Corinthians 1, 9. 2 Corinthians 1, 9. You can go ahead and turn there. I'll also have it up for you on the screen. When he was in Asia, Paul and his team had suffered tremendously. They had suffered so much, actually, that he said in this chapter that he thought he was going to die. He says in 2 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 8, he says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. 
For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So whatever the trial was, it was severe and it felt absolutely crushing to their spirits. Okay, see that, very clear. But in the next sentence, Paul tells us God's purpose in it. He says, but that, receiving the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves. You see that? Let's stop right there. We're going to pick up the rest of this verse in a second. But I want you to see the negative side of this trial, the negative purpose in this trial. What was it? It was to make them not rely on themselves. In other words, it was designed by God, the trial was designed by God to wean them off any self-reliance, any subtle idolatries that had crept into their hearts. They were tempted to find human solutions to their problems. And they were tempted to hope in those human solutions rather than to humbly look to God, even if it meant looking to Him and how He will vindicate them in the resurrection. But the trial was so crushing that they had nowhere else to look but Him. You ever been there? And we might be tempted to wonder, why did God bring that kind of severity on Paul? Was it necessary that he suffered that much just to get him hoping in God again? And I know that I'm certainly tempted to ask those questions when it's my own trial. But listen, beloved, we think these kinds of things because we underestimate the danger of our unbelief. We underestimate the pain and the devastation caused by our flirtation with idols. We don't realize how much damage we can do if that self-reliance runs unchecked. But God knows. And He loves us too much to let that linger. Here's how one pastor put it. He said, God would much rather you endure the pain of losing your idol than the injuries caused by idolatry. God would much rather you endure the pain of losing your idol than the injuries caused by idolatry. That's a profound statement and worth thinking about. God loves us enough to afflict us as his children for our ultimate good, for our ultimate joy, for our ultimate peace. And he sends the affliction to reveal to us, often, where our false hopes are and how we might repent of them. So you've been working really hard for the last two years. You've been coming in early to the office, leaving late, just trying to catch the eye of your employer, right? Just trying to get noticed. The promotion came up. You're being considered. Because, man, you're always the last to leave and you work hard. And you could really use the money. You've prayed for it. The Lord's opened the door. And then you find out someone else got the promotion over you. 
and your heart sinks. It's hard to focus on the email that you were writing. What are you going to tell your wife tonight? You won't be able to afford that house that you both were hoping to put an offer on later this week. And what if your current salary can't keep up with inflation? Then you start to panic on the inside. And then quickly that panic turns to frustration. Frustration at your boss. You start assigning motives. to why he didn't pick me. There's irritation at your coworker who got the promotion. Then envy. Then self-pity. I never get chosen for these things. No matter how hard I work. What's going on? What's happening right now? The trial. It's a trial. Not getting the promotion that you need. The trial is revealing a false hope. You subtly set your hopes on that promotion. I get it. They're subtle. Often we're not even aware that that's what's going on. Promotions are good. I need to... I need to work for my family. I can make money. Yeah. But you set your hope on it. How do you know? All that bad fruit. The Lord took your hope. And he revealed that what you were functionally trusting in was not him. And beloved, that is not severity. That is grace. That is his love. To be able to reveal our sin to us, our false hopes, so that we can realign is a mercy. And realignment is what the Lord is after. He's not simply exposing our false hopes, but he's driving us to fix our hope in the only one who can help us. In God himself. And that brings us to the second way that God matures us through trials. By strengthening our faith. Strengthening and refining our faith. And Paul goes on in the rest of our verse to to tell us exactly this. Look look down in verse 9. He says, But the trial, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That is realignment. God applies the pressure in the trial to bring us back to Himself. To strengthen our trust in Him. To refine our hope in Him. For Paul, he needed to get his eyes back on God. The God who has the power to raise him from the dead, even if he dies. And that reality liberated him. It gave him strength to continue to endure. It was his source of joy in the midst of soul-crushing suffering. Even as he faced our ultimate enemy, our last enemy, the sting of death. And it's not just Paul. James, the brother of our Lord, knew that trials do this as well. They're for the testing of our faith. James says in chapter 1, verse 3, 
And similarly, the Apostle Peter says trials are like a fire that refines our faith. It burns away the impurities of unbelief, smelting our faith into its most precious and valuable form. First Peter chapter 1. How so? How does it do this? How does, how did, how does the, the trial refine our faith? It's through this process. God sends the trial to reveal your heart. Eventually you see the bad fruit because you've been hoping in something else. Trial didn't cause it. It revealed it. And now God enables you to turn back to Him with an exercise of faith. You turn away from your human solutions and you depend fully on His promises. And every time you do this, every time a trial comes and tests your heart, and every time you turn from whatever you're trusting in to trust in Him, your faith is being refined as precious gold. He's burning off all that self-reliance. He's burning off those destructive patterns of pride. And you're learning to set your hope on what won't let you down. You're learning to depend on someone who is truly dependable. So what would this look like in real time in the the trial of being passed over for the promotion that we talked about just a second ago? It would sound something like this. Wow, Lord, you are really showing me my heart by not giving me this promotion. It's hard to see. It's ugly. Thank you for helping me see that I was functionally trusting in human resources to provide what I need and not you. I have to admit that I have no idea exactly how we're going to make all our payments if this inflation continues, but you know. You know what we need. And you have promised to provide for my needs and the needs of my family. You've got a plan, and I'm going to look to solutions. I'm going to look to you for solutions. And I pray you provide other opportunities for me. You have all the resources in the universe. And I'm going to apply for other other jobs, other opportunities. But help me to look in faith and not in fear. Help me to see this as from your good hand. I know you're growing me in this and you're going to take care of my family through it. Ultimately, Lord, may your will be done. I know that it's best. Now, you might have to write out a prayer like that. (laughs) And come back to it every day when you're in the heat of the trial. I know I do. That's because this realignment, this smelting, is not easy. Realignment never is. But it happens through the trial. It happens through the phone call that says, the cancer has come back. That's realignment. That's God teaching you not to rely on yourself, but to rely on him who raises the dead. When you realize you're not going to have very much more time on earth with that loved one, That is realignment. God is teaching you to hope in something that will not let you down, that transcends this life. 
It hurts now, yes, but it is absolutely best. The Lord loves you enough to teach you to fix your hope on something that transcends the grave. And he brings the trial to make sure we do. And each time we do, each time we realign and trust the Lord, each time you take your heart to the mat with the truth, the Lord is using that trial to mature you and strengthen your faith. So the Lord intends to actively refine and strengthen our faith in trials. As our faith is strengthened, something else is also happening because of that trial. God matures us through these trials by developing Christ's character. Character development is happening when God sends the trials. We've seen this theme again and again in Pastor Farrell's exposition of Romans, especially Romans 5. But James 1 says something very similar. James says that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In other words, the more our faith is tested and strengthened, the more stable we will be in life. More consistently faithful. Less prone to massive swings. We'll be able to bear up under pressure better as our faith muscle is strengthened. And the author of Hebrews frames it up similarly, but with a different metaphor. As our Father, God is disciplining us, or He's training us as His beloved children. And in particular, He's training us through trials to be like Him, to share in His holiness. Hebrews 12 says He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. He'll go on to say that this training is often painful in the moment, but it will lead to the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. And his point is that trials are the way that we come to share in the very holiness of God himself. It's the path the Lord often takes us down to cement his righteousness as part of our character. But again, how does that work in real time? Like, what's that, what's that look like? Well, as we saw, God's strengthening our faith. He's reorienting us to hope in him. And he's also strengthening us to obey him by faith in that moment. And that choice to obey in the heat of the trial, to obey by faith again and again, is how the Lord forges his own character within us. And we're going to talk a lot more about that in, in weeks to come. But for now, let's just go, go back to our example about that promotion. I'm trying to milk this one example, all right? What would it look like to yield to God in faith in this moment of trial so that Christ's character is developed in you? In other words, how would you obey in this trial? By faith. Well, it would start with you entrusting this entire situation to God and His promise to provide for you and your family. Right? That's where it starts. Entrustment. Then it would look like you continuing to work hard at that same job for the rest of your shift. 
and as long as you work there. If you felt anxious when you got home, embarrassed to tell your wife, then you would admit it humbly. You would ask her to pray for your heart to trust the Lord. And then, instead of wallowing around in self-pity, or trying to drown out your fears with endless scrolling on your phone, you would fully engage your family that evening. You would trust that the Lord knows your needs and has pledged to meet them, and you wouldn't live a preoccupied life with your wife and your kids because you're anxious. If you truly need more money, then you would start beating the bushes. You would start looking for other leads as you trust the Lord to provide, as you pray for it. And as hard as it would be, the next time you saw that coworker, the coworker that got the promotion that you wanted, next time you saw them, you would choose to rejoice in the fact that the Lord saw fit to provide for his family in that way. And that the Lord chose to refine your faith in the way he's chosen to do. I didn't say that would be easy. It's going to be very hard. Very challenging. It is excruciatingly difficult. And that's how you know you're growing. You feel the growing pains. And my point here is that the pressure of the trial, the pressure of the trial forces you to choose to obey by faith. And that is what forges Christian character in you. And so God intends to use the trial to grow us in Christ's own character. And we've alluded to this a couple times already, but do you realize that all this involvement of God in your life, especially through trials, is intended to lead to your assurance? As counterintuitive as it seems to us, Trials are intended by God to show you that He loves you. And that's our fourth way He grows us through trials. He he matures us through trials by assuring us we really are His beloved children. We really are. We really do belong to the Lord. Our passage in Hebrews that we were just looking at a little earlier, says the same thing in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The Lord assures us of his love for us by sending us the trial. This is absolutely crucial to take note of. Crucial to dog ear in your Bible and star and underline and whatever else you do. 
Because a passage like this totally obliterates some of the more sinister lies that we're tempted to believe in trial. My own heart's tempted to wonder if God really loves me when I'm suffering. Well, my life seems like I'm hitting roadblock after roadblock after roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. We'll talk about that in a minute as well. But my heart's tempted to wonder if God really loves me when I'm suffering. Many I counsel also experience the same thing. They say the same things to me. They ask the same questions. They feel abandoned. Forgotten. That God doesn't care about them. But that could not be further from the truth. Amen? This text shouts to us. That the trial is the very evidence of his love. He is a perfect father training and disciplining us for our good in his perfect wisdom. We make mistakes. He does not. It's an evidence that he is invested, deeply invested in your development. That he's powerfully at work to form his own holiness in you so that you can be effective in the here and now Yes, but even more so that you can reign with Him in power in His coming kingdom. He is training you to be part of His royal cabinet. To be kings and queens in the new creation. He is developing within you the very character it will take to reign with Him in His kingdom. What a thought. And so the next time you're tempted to doubt, when your life is hard, or when something lands on you that you weren't expecting, recall this verse and say, No, heart. As hard as this is, it is an evidence that He loves me. It is evidence that I am part of His family, and it's evidence that I'm being educated to rule in the kingdom. Get in line, heart. And as glorious as that is, God's actually doing something in the here and now, too. Through that trial, he is also making you a more effective servant right now. When the Lord sends you a trial, he's maturing you by improving your ability to minister to other people. Improving your ability to serve and minister to others through the trial. God's shaping us into a humble people, a tenderized people, a people who are empathetic toward others, people who know how hard trials can be because we have endured through some of them ourselves. And a people that can offer encouragement and hope to others. We see this principle clearly back in the opening chapter of 2 Corinthians. So I'll just click it up here. 2 Corinthians 1. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. You hear the comprehensiveness of that? 
God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul says here that when we're afflicted, we get the unique experience of being profoundly comforted and encouraged by God in the affliction. Trials tenderize us to the Word of God. Trials tenderize us to God's promises and to the reality of our future hope like nothing else can. When your health is taken away and you, what happens? You long for the resurrection more than you did before. You find yourself meditating often on what that glorious existence will be like. When a loved one is aging and your heart breaks for better years, you're forced beyond this life to specific passages about the new creation, to specific promises of the return of Christ. The Spirit works powerfully in these moments of weakness to minister comfort to us as we renew our minds, as we see things in texts we have never seen before, and it puts the fuel in our gas tank, spiritually speaking. You know what I'm talking about. And Paul says here that the experience of comfort does not terminate on you. God grants this experience to you in suffering so that you can pay it forward by comforting others. Said it before, but often, it's often said, bears repeating. When God digs a well in the desert of a trial and he sustains us with that water, he intends us to do what? Water others with it. He leaves the well there so others can come by and they can drink out of that water on their journey. You've known the truth and you've come to trust the Lord in a unique and a profound way as you learn to endure in a trial. So the Lord's dug that well. And that makes you very useful to others who will come behind you in their own experiences of affliction. You're equipped to water them with God's comfort. You know the lies that you were tempted to believe in those moments. And you can hear those rattling around in the person that's coming along behind you. You can help others avoid those same deceptions that trapped you. And the passage you went to in that trial, they're dog-eared. They're underlined. They're stained with your tears in your Bible, and they are precious to you. And you now know just where to go when God brings to you that suffering and thirsty soul. And you can say, here's the water. Come. Drink it with me. But sometimes when the Lord starts bearing fruit through our ministry to others, even then, our hearts can grow conceited and proud because of the fruit, how he's using us. We think we're somehow generating the fruit. And if he were to leave that pride unchecked, it would actually end up ruining our lives, ruining our ministries, ultimately our effectiveness, so oftentimes, even when we're bearing tremendous fruit through trials, 
in the, in the church. It is necessary for God to send trials and hardships to keep us from pride, ministry pride, from a pride that would otherwise ruin us. Where do we see this? Well, we see the Lord keeping Paul dependent amidst ministry successes. In 2 Corinthians 12. God matures us through trials by keeping us dependent, or we could say by keeping the mature saints dependent amidst ministry successes. Look with me in 2 Corinthians 12. I got it on the screen. He says, Paul says, listen to this language. So to keep me from becoming conceited, This is Paul, who is mature. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul is modeling for us us the principle that God often sends trials to keep us humble and dependent in the middle of ministry success. In this case, Paul had been given extraordinary revelations, he said. He even seen heaven. And he had heard things that he was not allowed to repeat. Now, for a still fallen human heart, that can only mean one thing. Paul repeats it twice. Temptation toward conceit. Even for Paul. Paul had been shown something that probably no other human being had been shown, and the temptation toward pride must have been tremendous. So a trial was given to Paul to keep him humble, to keep his pride at bay, he says. Or to keep him from becoming proud. And we're not sure what this thorn in the flesh was, and I'm not going to speculate. But whatever it was, it was rough. And it made Paul weak, humanly speaking. And when you're weak, you cannot trust in yourself. you got no strength in and of yourself, like we said in the beginning. And instead, you can only hope in God, and you can only look to Him to produce the fruit. But guess what the Lord does through a dependent and weakened servant? He produces more fruit. <laughs> More joy, more peace. And so, he says, God's power, his power is put on display mightily in a life like that. And this point is especially helpful when we're laid low in a season by a circumstance. And it hinders, put it in air quotes, you see that, right? It hinders our ministry. You're trying hard to serve the Lord. Feels like you're swimming in concrete. The deck feels stacked against you, and you just can't catch a break. I had a Sunday like this the other day. It was tough. It's like everywhere, everything that happened. And I prepared, right? Like I tried to do my human responsibility, could have prepared more, but like everything happened. It kind of like went to pot, you know? And it was just at every turn, and I'm thinking, Do you see all these students, Lord? Like, what's going on? 
And as I reflected on that day, I thought about this principle of how I am prone to pride and self-reliance in ministry. And it was necessary for my soul to keep hitting those roadblocks, to look up to him. That's what the Lord cared about on that Sunday. was keeping me humble and dependent so that his power would be put on display. We're tempted to think, what's going on? Why would you throttle me, Lord, especially when things are going so well? We often miss the potential in our heart for pride. And we don't see that the trial is a necessary remedy for the humbling of God's servants and resultingly more fruit. It's the pruning process of John 15. We're pruned through trials, but why? So that the remaining branches end up bearing more true fruit. The fruit that comes from a dependent and abiding heart, John 15. We can say more, but we're going we're gonna to wrap up with number six there tonight. And we can see, just as we step back, that God has not left us at all in the dark when it comes to his purposes in our lives through difficulty. In the world, Jesus says we will have tribulation, yes, but he uses this tribulation for our conformity to Christ, for the good of others, and ultimately for his great glory. And what we've surveyed tonight is just really a start. I mean, there's lots of things we didn't talk about. But it's helpful that we have these categories in our minds for sure as we, as we approach trials, as we're in trials. They give us a tremendous amount of hope when we're facing these difficulties. But as we wrap up, let me just give you some practical suggestions to help you make the most of the trial that you may currently be in right now. Rapid fire, okay? I'm not going to spend long here. Just rapid fire. Practical suggestions for, for making most, the most of your trials. First thing I tell anybody is just start by making an inventory of your, of your trials and your burdens. Now, you may not need to do that. Some people I know can just think in lists. That is not me. Okay, I have to write it out. It helps me list them out and then sort of prioritize which, which of these burdens are most troubling to me. Because often until I start reflecting, I, I don't really know. I just see bad fruit, but if, when I start to inventory, okay, I, re- I really am, my heart is really burdened by this. This thing really is a trial. Even, as, even if it seems small, it's something that's difficult to me. I just list those out. And then the next thing is just to recognize that God intends these dark clouds to break open in blessing on your head. And so, use these categories and start tracing out what God is doing in your life through the hardship. When I say these categories, I mean like one through six that we looked at. Take your trial and say, what is God doing in my life according to his word in this trial? And then write out those opportunities that you have. What fruit could the Lord produce in your life if you would just trust him with the difficulty? Instead of trying to manage it. 
instead of trying to come up with some human solution for it. What glorious opportunities lie within your reach if you could just see the trial rightly as from His good, wise, and sovereign hand. Start tracing these things out. Write these opportunities out for yourself. And this helps me get my heart to the point where I commands to rejoice in trials. Okay? James 1, Romans 5, we're commanded to rejoice in trials. But that joy only comes when I'm able to see these opportunities, trace out what God is doing according to his word, and yield to the Lord in those perspectives, right? Then I choose to rejoice. And sometimes it's a daily choice. Sometimes it's an hourly choice to rejoice in the trial, depending on the severity of the trial and the temptations that you're facing in them. So choose to rejoice daily for those reasons that we talked about earlier. And also, don't grow myopic in the trial. It's a real temptation to focus on, this is, my, this is a problem, and I've got to get rid of this thing, and you miss everything else that's going on in your life. You focus only on the hardship of that one circumstance, and you miss the 100,000 other daily mercies that God's provided for you. So, look for other mercies. Often we're, we're more like Eve, and we fixate on the one tree we don't have, and we neglect the other thousand trees in the garden that God has blessed us with. And I'd make a catalog of those as well, not just of your burdens, but make sure your soul is thankful. Make sure your soul is benefiting from all the mercies God has given to you. And the dangers that we see, God is always doling out trials on us. When in reality, he's only given us a few. And it's not more than we can bear. And the rest of our lives are full of his good gifts to us. He is a generous God. And he knows what we need. And finally, I would encourage you to look to the future. Look to the future. This isn't really an encouragement. This is more of a command from Peter, 1 Peter 1. Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look to the future. Look to the coming kingdom where God's lavish generosity will be on display for eternity as he blesses you with unbelievable things. He's going to put his kindness on display toward you in all of eternity, Ephesians 2. That day is coming, and Paul calls it an eternal weight of glory. And that glory will help us see that the trials of this life were simply light and momentary in comparison. As Peter says, they're only for a little while. So what a vision. Amen? I want to keep these perspectives in view as we encounter trials. Let's pray. Father, I know that my own heart is so weak. Even this week, I can catalog a number of circumstances and situations where you tested my heart and I failed the test. 
And yet, even in the failure, you help us see our sin. You help us see our self-reliance and to repent of it. And even the failure becomes occasion to grow. So thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you for how you are ordaining all things, using all things in our lives to our, for our conformity to Jesus. Thank you for how you prove your love for us, even when you send us the difficult things, things we would never And We pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes of faith to help us see what you're doing in the trial, to submit to it, and that this church would radiate your glory in the short life we have. And we pray it all in the name of Christ. Amen.